Welcome to Restart Radio. I'm Dave Pickering and I make podcasts. I spend most of my life online, but I've got no idea how to fix any of the devices that help me to spend my time there. But I've been invited to a party. It's called a restart party, and this party might just help me to understand the technology that I use every day and all the time. A restart party is a pop-up community repair event where skilled volunteers help people diagnose and repair their broken electronics. They are organised by the Restart Project, who are a London-based charity and social enterprise whose mission is to spark reflection and change in our relationship with gadgets. So let's go now to a restart party. So what's your name? Gregory. My name is Ursula. Um, my name is Stephanie. It's Augusta. And uh, why are you here at the Restart event today? A friend of mine told me about this Restart project. I thought it was a fantastic idea to reuse believed dead laptops, basically, to fix them up and just to use them again. I'm the host. I'm looking after the space. And I invited the wonderful restarters to come down and use the space. I decided to repair my phone. Uh, the screen was broken. It wasn't very successful, so I came here to see if I can fix it. I attempted to be healthy and bring a green drink to work and a little bit of the juice went inside the laptop and unfortunately it doesn't withheld any battery life now. So when I take the battery uh, plug out, it, it just turns straight off. Basically I've got uh, my partner's tablet. It's out on the table half open. It looks <laughs> a very nerve-wracking situation at this point, oh, I guess. It's touch and go, but signs are looking good. Yeah. So hopefully. It shouldn't be so nerve-wracking to see the insides of a tablet, but we just don't see them ever. Well, so that's the thing with all the plastic casing around. You don't really get to know or get to see what's, what's inside. So um, I come from a school where my granddad used to repair TVs, so soldering, etc., etc. So I knew what roughly what the problem was. So it was always worth a shot to try and bring it down and get it repaired. Those voices were from a restart party that took place in the old laundry at King's Cross. In today's episode, we're looking at the future of commercial repair and the relationship between it and community repair. In order to look to the future, we also have to look at what's happening right now. To start us thinking about where commercial repair is at now, here is Ugo from the Restart Project talking to me at our Restart Party. Community repair and commercial repair are two parts of the answer and neither one or the other is the only ultimate solution. Community repair cannot be the full answer because we, for example, we run now in London quite a lot of events, but there's maybe three or four restart parties every month, and it's barely scratching the surface. And when people have something that breaks, they normally are not prepared to wait for a week or so to get it working again. And there's only a minimal amount of repairs that can happen during community repair events. In fact, we see them as a way to highlight the need for a return to a more vibrant commercial repair sector. This episode will cut between more recordings from that restart party, some conversations with people who work in commercial repair, and this interview. My name is John Thackera. I'm a writer and event producer based in France with a long history of writing books and blogs about design and sustainability. John's book, How to Thrive in the Next Economy, came out in September 2015 in hardcover and is published by Thames and Hudson. The book has a core proposition, which is that not by choice, but by the unavoidable consequence of the 
conflation of the economy and the degradation of the systems around us that are happening at the moment, we will end up living with far fewer resources than we're used to in the modern, high-tech, highly commercialized world. So my book is about dozens of examples from different parts of the world where people meet their daily life needs, everything from feeding their children to moving about the city to communicating, using fewer resources than we're used to. And under that heading of one way to describe it is a 5% economy in which the resources used by people per person are something like 20 times less than we're used to now. That obviously includes a large amount of expertise and new forms of organization and new arrangements for reusing things that already exist. So although I don't in the book have a whole chapter on remaking and recycling, I do refer throughout the book to communities and groups of people in parts of the world who are described as being poor or underdeveloped, but who nonetheless get more or less the same results from their activities as we do, but for 20 times less resources. And that includes repairing things, sharing things, sharing them the skills needed to operate them and so on. Did you try and fix this tablet anywhere else before today? Um, no, I can't really think of too many that do repairs on stuff nowadays. Yes, I did, because I have a warranty. I placed up at Highbury, Highbury and Islington, that area, and they were going to charge me just under £600. Before you came here, you tried self-repair. So you bought the part yourself and you tried... And, and, and what happened? <laughs> it was extremely complicated, but I think I did fairly well. I think one of the connections was not in properly. So I came here, we checked it, connected everything properly, and it still wasn't working. So I now think it's the screen that was the problem. You talk about the economy of the city in the book. What would a repair economy look like in a city, in the kind of economy you're talking about? Examples I know best are from India. I've been going to India for 25 years, and people don't have the money, for example, to buy a new computer or phone every time one breaks down. They have an automatic response, which is to go out into the street and find somebody to fix it for you. And so in Delhi, for example, where I spent a lot of time, if a phone breaks or a computer breaks, you literally carry it down the street and there's, a, there's two or three areas where you can find literally hundreds of people operating micro businesses, anything from one or two people. Sometimes they don't have an office, they're just sitting on a box. They just have a, a phone number strapped to the wall. You find the person who specializes in your subject. He will then fix it uh, more or less on the spot for a tiny, tiny amount of the money that you would expect to spend in a European or an American city. So that is just what is there now and would not even occur to them to uh, throw a product away just because it didn't work. So it's, it's in the system. And it's one of the many examples in the book of we have much to learn from the South and so-called undeveloped people that we think we're supposed to be teaching them. My name's Rob Kerr. I'm the co-founder of Love Phone and we're a mobile phone and uh, smart device repair company. So we're the kind of the scrappier kind of startups that uh, do, you know, repairs in the streets. And it's, this is everyone from the entrepreneur sitting on a corner who's, who's kind of working hard and doing sort of more inexpensive repairs to the sort of, you know, slightly larger third party repairers like us who've got a sort of a team, uh, etc. But we're doing phones at the moment, but our vision is to kind of repair anything, anything electronic. So we want to get into drones. We want to get into smart watches. Uh, everything's getting smaller. Everything's getting more mobile. So we want to basically be able to repair pretty much anything that goes wrong. I mean, a friend of mine told me about in, in Istanbul, there's a guy used to come down the street every week on a Tuesday and shout out, what do you want repaired? And he would fix your door, he'd fix your stove, etc. So we want to do that in kind of in the, the world of the internet. You know? If you have a problem with an electronic device, you can come to us and, and we'll sort it. Right, I mean, and that, that's the thing, that repair 
as a kind of e- economic ecosystem seems to have diminished to a certain extent. Yeah, my mum grew up in Northern Ireland and she had like the travellers come along and they would repair pans and that kind of stuff. And you're right, it's, it's, it has very much diminished. And I think that's probably due to the complexity of, of, of things now. And also just the more modern manufacturers disincentivize you to repair. They just want you to rebuy. It's, you know, this kind of this, this linear form of consumption. But that's going to have to change. And with more circular economy, more circular consumption, things are going to go from gray to white. And uh, they'll be certified, there'll be accreditations. It'll be like getting your car fixed, you know. You can get, you can get anything electronic fixed, hopefully, in, in the near future. But a lot has to change so we get there. What I love is also that there is none of this nonsense about, you know, brands or certificates or accreditation or the, all the kind of paperwork and the certificates that stand between you and me getting something fixed and then taking it to an authorized dealer where the costs are enormous. There, you just go onto the street and somebody will say, yes or no, if somebody's good at it, and you judge it there and then. So you get this instant feedback and it's so much more flexible, it's so much more fun because then you get to know the guy who can mend, you, mend your printer, you get to know the guy who can fix your car or your refrigerator, and you then have a personal relationship with people who put their hands on your things, which I think is just totally preferable than fighting your way through these automated systems. Have you had a good experience of commercial repairs or a bad experience of commercial repairs? Not much experience all in all, but whatever one hears or whenever you try to repair something, it seems incredibly expensive and you don't learn anything. You just get the machine back and hope for the best that it works better. They're mending your problem, but they're not helping you to know how to fix it yourself. Or to prevent it from happening again, yes. Not really, no. I mean, the only thing I've got fixed is my iPhone screen. I got that fixed. There was a little stall on Kings and High Street next to Ridley Road Market. There was a guy that fixed my iPhone screen for 25 quid, a lot cheaper than the main Apple Play but it broke again the following week so it's now broken again my screen so what would you like to see in commercial repairs i'm actually repairing (laughs) (laughs) how can i say where things are not made with the durability to last nowadays they're more willing to just like give you a new one and etc etc when a lot of things can it's a simple repair and like you do here you can teach people how to repair them yourself as well (laughs) yeah i mean a lot of people have been sort of saying that so far they've been saying you know commercial repairs that helped us to learn as well as fix our stuff would be worth paying for because a long way is like if you get the self-diagnostics and kind of rule out certain things and if it's too technical about your skill set then you can um, move on to get someone who's skilled at doing that absolutely and i guess that's the good thing about taking it to a restart party is you get to find out the diagnostics of it and if it is too much for people to repair here today (laughs) uh you can you know yeah you know what the problem is yeah yeah. what's your name ben and uh why are you here at the restart party today uh i'm a restarter so i'm one of the volunteers who uh helps uh, lead other people in restarting i studied guitar making so a lot of my work is repairing guitars and i work in a guitar shop too i mean so what's it like working in commercial repairs i mean how how is it how is it going the industry guitars are an interesting one because there is a limited customer base but there will always be one because people are always buying guitars and people are very attached to them they want them repaired there is a skill set to be had and there is business but it's also quite hard to grow it because if you do a really good job, they don't always come back. Right. Um, okay, so you're kind of like, if you fix the guitar too well, it won't break again. Yeah. Get to, see, to see any more money coming from that. You almost have to basically commit yourself to really pleasing the customer so they either bring other stuff or tell their friends. So there's a strong pressure to have good service. Repeat business might only be every couple of years for some people. Right. I mean, and that's a testament to you guys doing good repairs. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's probably other establishments 
that you wouldn't want to name that don't don't mend things quite as well, and then people kind of come back, at, but they don't have quite, yeah. quite as good customer service. I guess. It's it's all, it was almost a cut and run thing where they basically go, let's cheap out on one repair, and that customer won't come back. We've got some money out of them easy, so they either try and oversell and make more money on you as a customer. Or they just don't do the repair, so they save money on time. Even, and guitar shops do it as well as electronics places, where you know, you put something in, and then you ask and you ask, and they eventually give it back. And actually, they haven't done anything with it. You do hear stories of people not repairing the thing they've taken money for doing. In the book, a little bit, as you talk about Ravelry, which isn't really about electronics, but I, I think it kind of has kind of something that we could learn in terms of the way that electronics might work. I'm glad you asked about Ravelry because it's one of my favourite stories in How to Thrive because not that I'm a kind of hardcore knitter, but I wanted to understand, partly through people in my, my home life who are very interested and enthusiastic, how do people teach each other things about something very obscure like how to knit the heel of a sock or what is the best wool to make a sort of hat for rain in or whatever. And I just discovered through a somewhat accidental means this extraordinary global community of five and a half, getting on for six million people who share precisely that kind of information online uh, with incredible openness and uh, honesty and transparency. And it was one of those miraculous things that started out life as a volunteers, fashion design type people or knitters. So we, it's, why is it such a hassle to find out information? We should start a discussion board. And it just grew from there. And that's where the spirit of the maker movement or the, the notion of openness, the openness of sharing was one of the you know, dynamic preconditions for Ravelry to grow. And my point is not that we all have to go online and, you know, get learn how to knit socks there, but this is an incredible resource when we're offline, but have lack one piece of technical information. Because one of the things I'm pretty uh, fanatic about in this whole making and repairing world is that it's more to do with personal connections than putting vast amounts of information online in the form of, you know, textbooks or even videos that if you can find a person to help you directly, it's so much more effective and more fun than, you know, reading pre-recorded stuff, technical things that it's uh, you could not in a million years imagine that being done by an organization as a, as a purposive act. Right. Those kind of examples might show, I, I guess, the way that repair work in general in terms of a, an economy or a new movement that doesn't even have to be necessarily paid repair, I guess. It can also be like just people helping each other out without the money. But I mean, I guess a new kind of movement towards repair that we don't sort of have kind of currently, I guess, particularly. I think we do have it currently, but it's just very much below the radar. and It's not necessarily organized through internet platforms so that it's easily found. But, you know, large numbers of people, in, I, I live in a small town in France, people are constantly fixing things for each other right. and always have done because it's much easier to know somebody who can do something than it is to go and look for a dealer and then drive somewhere with your whatever needs to be mended. I'm not saying that you don't need professionalized resources, you know, for things like electronics and so on, but social networks provide rapid and trustworthy feedback about who is good at something more powerful, I think, than some brand saying, come to your authorized Audi dealer or come to your authorized sewing machine dealer, where sure, many of us have experienced it's slow, probably expensive, and with no guarantee at all that the results are going to be good. So I think that social networks, particularly when they're organized in a local or regional area, where the people who are good at things get the work, maybe you don't have to make it a purely money-based thing, maybe it can be exchange of services. That's what happens when people live in a healthy community now. So it's, I'm not describing anything revolutionary, just I look around for examples that maybe have been there for a long time. 
and which help uh, can be kind of reimagined and re-energized and made more effective with the addition of design skills or mobile platforms and so on. I mean, where do you see the repair, commercial repair industry going? I think it will get stronger, partly because a lot of it's more on the onus of either sustainability or ethical behaviour. So that either means not buying things from China or not buying new things when you could get secondhand. And so there is more value in repair, not directly because it's cheaper, but that is a pressure for some people. For me, it's, a, it's an issue. But more because some people will prefer to keep their item than get a new one. And do you think the repair, the commercial repair industry is aware of that? Is there, are they paying attention? I don't know if there's much of a commercial repair industry. Even 15 years ago, but definitely 50, you could go to the radio shop and get some valves or you could get your radio looked at or your TV. Even mechanics, which I've only been driving recently, and uh, it's quite hard to find someone who can just have a look at your car and tell you what's wrong with it. You have to take it to the dealer who plugs it into a computer and rather than telling you what's wrong with the car, they tell you what the car manufacturer has predicted needs doing. It's not the same thing. That's not more like a service, you know. And so I think things aren't always built to be repaired anymore, which is part of why there aren't any repairers. You, you can't fix everything. Whereas I think 50 years ago, everything could be repaired. And what do you think is missing from the commercial repair sector? At the moment? People need to know about it but they need to exist to be known about. Guitar repairers often have a relationship where they visit a shop once a week to pick up any repairs, and it's a symbiotic relationship because the shop is a known name and people go to them, but it brings customers in for the shop as well if the repairer can come. So I think maybe it needs to be blended in with the existing market. You know, you're not going to have a, a niche for repair. You need it to sort of coexist. And what about the future of repair? Like, where do you see the industry being in 10, 15, 20 years? I'm hoping it becomes much stronger. There are lots of aspects. I'm hoping that parts become more available because more people want to repair. And therefore, as a repairer, you're not sort of stranded looking online for parts. You've actually got a dealer or a a warehouse where you can go. That might also involve making parts more universal. You know, rather than every phone having its own unique components, it could be that Samsung use the same components in everything they make or every microphone and every phone being the same. So basically, uh, the manufacturing industry needs to allow room for repair and kind of let them in on the, the game, almost. At the moment, a kind of large chunk of city people can still afford to buy phones and throw them away every two years, and ditto for their computers and their printers and their cars and their everything else. That form of wastefulness is it becomes less and less accessible financially. The, the size of the informal and the precarious economy grows where we simply don't have the money to behave like that. Right. Therefore, that behavior will become more and more of a, a rich person's niche activity, culturally frowned on, I'm sure. And because it lacks the whole personal connection and the satisfaction that we get from keeping things going. So we are in a trajectory towards disposing of things rather than repairing them. But I personally regard that as a a temporary blip of a generation and a bit, which will fairly abrupt end as the economy implodes. I mean, I guess there's, there's going to be financial reasons for us changing our, our attitude to that, but there's also going to be environmental reasons. And those two things are intrinsically linked. The worse the economy gets, almost the worse the environment is getting at the same time. So I guess there's so many reasons for us to change the way we are uh, approaching it. It's true, but I'm, I am not an advocate of people adopting a life of sobriety and, and purity as, as a sort of lifestyle or moral choice, because I've been around long enough to 
to know they're just not going to do that. Not because they don't want to, but people have very stressed lives. They have they have to pay for houses and get their kids fed and all these things. And turning into a kind of um, a Buddhist monk with very few needs is not an easy option if you have a normal urban, you know, modern life. What I'm saying is that more and more of us who are in those situations have less and less resources to throw around on wasteful forms of gadget purchase. And that what I see happening in the many, many examples of where this repair culture is being modernized is actually that if people have a better quality of relationship with their works and with the other people they work with, never mind the fact that it's much cheaper. I went to a fabulous event at the London College of Fashion called Craft of Use, which was a whole pile of people who've been talking about upcycling and you know stopping wasteful use of clothes and getting away from two wash, two wear t-shirts. They've been doing that as advocacy for years now, have had very little impact on the big bad businesses that kind of drives the whole thing. So their new emphasis is on the social and cultural qualities of meeting together to make clothes out of existing textiles, the skills they can share with each other, the jobs that can be, or the work anyway, that can be created, you know, repairing shoes, repairing clothes. You have all sorts of qualities that emerge from things that are an economic necessity. You begin to get a much better quality of life, as well as a cheaper one, which maybe you have no choice about, from socially organizing a relationship with your material possessions, working with people and having fun doing it is an added bonus. So I don't want it to sound sentimental. It's a practical need but it's also something which has a, a real quality to it. Do you think there's anything missing from commercial repairs in general? There's no communication or education when fixing an issue or a problem, which is unlike most other areas, really. When you have a problem, when you go to the doctor, you kind of know and hear and, and get a bit of education what's going on and why you take the meds and what they do. With this sort of stuff, it doesn't happen. I don't know. I just feel that we're just sort of bunged into a room, given a number and then given a, a really expensive invoice or receipt for something that didn't should cost a lot less and then just bunged out again I feel that a lot of the big companies and organizations that have the like Apple making it too easy for them to break maybe they need to like make it so you, 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 if you just spill one little drink over it it should be fine what's missing I don't know maybe we need to learn together how to fix our things instead of just getting somebody else to fix it so that'd be quite good yeah, I usually tried to do it myself <laughs> I did that with my previous phone but it was a different kind of phone so it was very straightforward cost a fraction of the price that professionals wanted so reasonably priced quick and informative there are philosophers amongst us who will explain why it is that we are as human beings embodied creatures and that we are you know for tens of thousands of years or even millions of years have experience the world through our bodies and not just through our brains. Modern civilization in which we so heavily rely on mediated forms of understanding, things on screens, things through microphones and so on, we have very radically diminished the range of qualities in which we experience the world. Make things, as, you know, touching them, understanding them, sharing them, using them together, begins to reconnect us, not just with our own bodies, but with, you know, other peoples and with the earth. And so there's a philosophical sense in which the maker movement is driven by the practical necessity to make more with less, but it's also creating this kind of sense of fulfillment and connectedness and empathy with your fellow beings, which has been dissolved away by the world which has too much media in it. Again, I have to emphasize it's not about choosing between media and making things. Media, I think, will properly fade into the background once the uh, 
the kind of majority of our time and attention is faced on supplying our the great majority of our daily needs from our own region with people we more or less know or trust with resources and plants and materials that we know where they came from. All of those are, on the one hand, necessities, but they're also a source of joy and fun. That's what I want to emphasize always. I guess the last question is, how, why did you become a restarter? What drew you to restart? Uh, I got an email from a friend's mum and it said, oh, they're having this party where they sort of fix things. You turn up and fix things. So I was drawn to it out of the interest for fixing like a challenge. And I found out that it also scratches the itch of socialising, that I like to meet new people a lot. And then it also scratched the itch of helping people, which I, I like to do when I can, and I try and find easy ways to do it. You know, it can be for money, but not always. And then it sort of realised, well, it's, it's leaning on sustainable behaviour. It's teaching people about sustainable behaviour because it's a bit of a head, a head fake. You're tricking people into being more sustainable because they go, oh, it's cheaper to keep my phone. So it's actually mostly selfish. I do it because I enjoy the activity and I get a good feeling out of it that I'm doing the right thing in the big picture of the world. And the fact that it's also having an impact on others makes it just more positive. But uh, I do it because I enjoy it. Is there any other kind of thoughts or ideas you have around the repair economy and how that might look in the future? There's a couple of things that I've been most impressed about in the last kind of year or so. The first is that we are, and I'm including totally myself on that, pretty damn ignorant about the resources available in our own area, whether it be an individual with a skill or a small workshop or some kind of strange speciality. I think the act of systematically making lists and maps and directories and websites of local making and repairing resources can be very exciting just by itself. I mean, there's a fabulous project in Scotland called MakeWorks. I'm very inspired by who say, well, by the way, why do we have to buy all this nonsense made in Korea and never be able to have it fixed when we have uh, all these small workshops which are struggling away in back streets but contain highly skilled people? So just by the act of searching out production and repair resources and putting it all on a map that's accessible to people on a website, it's beginning to transform the self-confidence of bits of Scotland about how much they can make for themselves. And another thing is just the general subject of maker events being fantastically popular, not something that I ever properly appreciated until I went into one in America a couple of years ago. They had 10,000 people assembling in a kind of field with a bunch of tents and tables to make stuff not to any great social or environmental agenda, just because of the sheer joy of doing it. And that I learned a big lesson then and in some other ones I've been to is that making is not just about and repairing, not just about feeling good and being virtuous. It actually is a very joyful social experience. It's making food or making beer. It's all the same sort of picture. Just people get a fantastic amount of pleasure. It, it can more or less only be done collaboratively with people. So it creates social connection as well as getting the work done. And so one can begin with a social agenda of, you know, maker of by themselves, but combine that, I think, be more systematic about finding out what's happening in your area within a five or ten mile radius, because it's always amazing what you find. Two things have happened in the commercial repair sector that we've experienced here in London. Because of the high cost of having a high street shop, a lot of dedicated repair shops had to close down. At the same time, something else happened, which is that some people that were not necessarily very transparent about the ethics of their work have let people down. And when that happens, people automatically think that repair is not possible, it's dodgy, and they cannot trust repairers as a whole. Right. So we need to help rebuild the conditions for good 
reliable repairs, commercial repairs, to be able to thrive and help reduce the amount of things that we waste collectively. What our community repair events show is that people do value transparency and openness. Lots of people that come to restart, the ones that cannot fix their device, they're not necessarily willing to just throw it away. They'll be very happy to be referred to the right person who can help them. Commercial repair should learn from what's happening in the community repair. And it's happening in, to some extent. There are some repair businesses that we are little by little learning about that actually provide good value and are transparent and open, no fix, no fee, guaranteed timing and one-year warranty or performance warranty on the repairs. All these things should help people make an easier decision to support repair and prevent unnecessary waste. But the two are not mutually exclusive and that's why we'll be more than happy to have more commercial repairs come and volunteer their time at restart parties as a way to then promote the work that they can do right. on a day-to-day -day basis. Right. And the two can coexist and should. As Ugo from Restart just laid out, community repair and commercial repair can complement and enrich each other going forward into the future. Some other things that complement and enrich each other are the worlds of podcasting and radio. And Restart Radio is both a podcast and a weekly show that goes out at 130 on Tuesdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Today's restart party is over, so it's time to pack up the equipment and say goodbye to each other. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>